Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll revisit the topic of immigration, which is uh, critical to the nation's economic future and is very much in the news. Our first guest is Ali Narani, president and CEO of the National Immigration Forum, which is an advocacy organization promoting the value of immigrants and immigration. And our second guest is Ambassador George Bruno. He was an, he is an experienced diplomat an immigration lawyer and former U.S. ambassador to Belize and a member of the Concord Coalition Advisory Council in New Hampshire. So first up is Ali Narani. Ali, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I am uh, really, really grateful for the opportunity to chat. Well, you know, um, you're one of the nation's foremost experts on immigration and you come at it from an interesting perspective. I think uh, kind of a unique perspective on something that often has people at, at each other's throats. And uh, I've always enjoyed your take on immigration issues, which seems to be bent on uh, on, on consensus. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. So you've got a new book out called Crossing Borders, the Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants. And I'd, I'd like you to just sort of key off of that and uh, let us know what, what are the themes of that book? Well, what I tried to do is take a global perspective on migration, first of all, and try to uh, pick apart, unpack uh, migration from Central America, the Syrian refugee crisis of 2015, and really try to paint a picture of how those two flows of human beings, because at the end of the day, we are talking about human beings, impacted the politics of uh, Western Europe, much less the United States. And with what I found is that both of those crises were politically weaponized by Orban, Farage, Trump, among others, gave rise to a, to a large degree to the alt-right that became nationalism, that has become Christian nationalism. And then the question that I really grapple with in the second half of the book is, okay, what do we do about it? Um, and the, the, the punchline here, if you will, is that in order for us to reconcile our nation of immigrants, we need to reconcile our communities. So I had a lot of fun telling the stories of, you know, dairymen in Idaho, police chiefs in Iowa, uh, immigrants and refugees across the country, uh, really working to reconcile uh, communities so that we as a nation are really embarking on a much more com constructive and compassionate approach to immigration. You know, uh, I think that the benefit of immigration to the nation is is sometimes overlooked, which is ironic for a, a nation of uh, for immigrants. But uh, if you could just say for a minute, I mean, that w when we talk about this, it's, it's not really just a matter of, you know, um, should we get people in from other countries or should we protect the borders better? I mean, the basic problem is that we are we've got a, a, a 
population problem, <laughs> an elderly, right, right. you know, I mean, the population is aging and uh, we uh, the workforce growth is slowing remarkably and is projected to do so over the next few years. So immigration becomes really an important uh, element of economic growth. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think it became very clear to the American public the value of immigrants and immigration over the course of the last two or three years with COVID-19. Uh, and it became, you know, all of us came to realize that it was the immigrant and the refugee community, whether it was our doctor, our nurse, um, the folks at the, the grocery stores, the folks in the fields who were working shoulder to shoulder with native born Americans to help us recover uh, uh, and respond to COVID-19. So that was, I think, a very visceral and tangible example of the contributions, uh, the economic contributions of immigrants. But you take, you kind of pull back a little bit and you quickly realize the disproportionate role of immigrants in the workforce. Um, you know, was, I think there's 18% of uh, the, the current workforce is foreign born, you know, which is percentage points higher than their actual uh, uh, share of, of the general population. And then you kind of look at very specific industries and it becomes much more clear. You know, earlier in 2020, we uh, released a report called, I'm sorry, earlier in uh, 2021, I released a report called Room to Grow. And what we found is that in order to maintain the current proportion of retirees to working age adults, we need to increase uh, legal immigration by about 33%, which is roughly around 300,000 people a year. That's not a significant amount of folks in a country of over 340 million people, um, but it's that infusion of energy, of talent that ultimately will help all of us uh, not just prosper, but really thrive into our retirement. When I want to bring Av in here, but I've got one more uh, question. The, uh, the the issue of uh, reconciliation uh, and the stories that you tell about uh, reconciling immigrants and communities. Um, what is the uh, what needs to be reconciled? And in, in other words, what what, what are the uh, what are the issues that come up? That's a really that's a really great question, because, you know, what we found through our research and then through our work on a day to day basis at the National Immigration Forum is that for many Americans, uh, the concerns boil down to three different fears. Uh, one is around culture. And the question is, are immigrants and refugees, are they integrating or are they isolating? Then there's a question around security. Are immigrants and refugees, are they threats or protectors? And then the economic fear is often uh, the question around, are immigrants giving or taking from uh, American society? So what we try to do through our work every day is to understand those fears, provide the opportunities for folks to uh, uh, grapple with those fears through the framework that makes the most sense to them, that is most comfortable uh, for them. Um, and really, you know, we don't try to, to approach the work as, you know, telling people that, you know, they're wrong. Rather, we really try to approach the work as, you know, uh, meeting people where they are, but not leaving them there. Um, and that what we found is that if we can address those fears, if we can have a conversation and dialogue about those fears, that ultimately people will sit down and say, you know what? The immigrant family that I go to church with, my kids' best friends who are from uh, uh, Africa, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of here. Uh, we are both neighbor, we're, we're neighbors in the same community, we're contributing to the same town or city, um, and we want the same things for our, our families. And that, I think, is where, you know, we find that reconciliation. Av. So, uh, Ali, I'm very interested in your opinion on 
where we are politically with this in the perspective of where we were and where we're going. Because I can remember in 1980 in the Republican presidential primary, uh, Reagan versus Bush, both of them were arguing. And Reagan, of course, being a conservative Republican, Bush being a, a, a more moderate strain, were arguing about how to best have open borders, encourage immigration. Um, and that was de a debate, an internal debate within the Republican Party. Now, um, today, we've got Democrats criticizing the Biden administration for its decision to cancel the executive order that stopped immigration at the border uh, as, as a public health measure because of the pandemic, saying that this border surge um, is a concern. This is Democrats now criticizing a Democratic administration. So uh, in your work, right, to reconcile communities, there are all of these political undercurrents that are that are hitting. Some are cross currents, you know, against each other. But in the context of the fact that we are growing into a more diverse country, it, it is it is uh, it's just it's like the tide. It's 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 coming. And I think in the future, we're probably looking at more mass waves of of immigration because of things like climate change, too. So I guess I'm wondering, um, can you put where we are in context? Where do you see us going? Where do you see us coming from? So this conversation is going to go on for four hours, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, another, another really, really important question. Um, you know, in crossing borders, I actually, when I was doing the research around Iowa, for example, and I think Iowa provides a really important example because Iowa in the late 1970s, uh, Governor Robert Ray led the country, if not the world, to urge uh, uh, liberal democracies to take a step forward and welcome Vietnamese refugees. You know, he pushed the Mondale administration and he said, as a Republican governor of Iowa, I'm going to open my doors to uh, Laotian and Vietnamese refugees. And this was based on, you know, we probably might remember this, the, the reporting that Ed Bradley was doing in Vietnam those day, in those days. So Iowa starts as a very welcoming state. Then in the mid 80s, the farm debt crisis pushes uh, people off their farms, um, allows big ag to come in um, and really change the economic model of Iowa, um, which then leads to a lot of immigrants coming into Iowa. A couple of years later, who shows up? Patrick Buchanan. And he says, well, immigrants are coming to take your job. They're taking your land. All these terrible things are happening. Um, and from Patrick Buchanan, you get to Steve King, who represents, who represented Northwestern Iowa for, you know, multiple years and probably one of the most uh, uh, anti-immigrant uh, members of Congress that we've seen in recent history. So in, the, you know, a 10, 15 year span, you see this massive change in Iowa, and this is 20 years ago. And all that, I think, really sets the trajectory that we're on now. Um, where you see, I think, the American public, Democrat or Republican, wanting to see a border that's, quote, in control. Um, and what Trump and others have been successful in doing is to, to lead the public to believe that 
the more cruelly that we're treating people, the more in control we are of our border. Um, but the fact is, with Title 42 in place, and these are the public health restrictions that the Trump administration put into place and that the Biden administration says they're going to lift uh, later this, this spring, we actually never saw apprehensions decrease. We actually saw apprehensions stay level or actually increase because Title 42 really kind of played into the business model of the cartels of uh, created over the last 10 years. So where do we go? I mean, I think that we need to, as a nation, have a more global perspective on migration, understand how migration is changing across the Western hemisphere, um, because whether it's you know corruption, poverty, climate change, um, all of these factors are, are what is pushing families in Mexico, Central America, Latin America, South America to make perfectly rational decisions to find safety in the U.S., and as long as we don't have a functioning legal immigration system, cartels are going to be the ones that are winning. So I also think ultimately we've got to understand what the problem is um, and actually come up with a solution that targets the, the culprit, which are the cartels and not the victims who are the migrants. So I wonder if I can ask a follow up, because what I what I what I like about the work that you're doing is that you're in communities talking to real people. So what I uh have a struggle understanding. Again, I'm a son of an immigrant, right? So I'm a first generation American and I have, I've got, I've got the, the, the immigrant parent experience where I still have to explain things, um, you know, to my, to my mother who doesn't quite understand some, you know, pretty common American expressions and, you know, lots of kids grow up, you know, with, with that. And so I have struggle understanding if we know that immigration is such a key to sustained economic growth and and high quality standard of living in the United States for the next 30 to 50 years. And the other thing is being in the Northeast, so I'm based in New Hampshire, what I know is that the only thing that has sustained populations, overall populations, forget about working age populations, but overall populations have only been sustained through immigration in this area of the country in the last 20 to 30 years. So knowing these facts, knowing how critical immigration is to continued economic growth in the United States, I just cannot understand politically why both parties or, or people across the spectrum would be raising such an alarm on immigration because if, if we don't change to a more proactive immigration policy, like you said, um, work on the legal uh, immigration system, we're going to have a real problem in 20 years when it comes to how are we going to get the working age population to what we need it to be in order to sustain job growth and our population is, is, is aging at the same time. So we need more young people and more working people and immigration is key to that. So I just, that's what I have a struggle understanding with, is why our politics and our discussions about this in everyday communities don't take into effect the basic you know, fundamental truth that's staring us right in the face. Our economy is dependent on good immigration policy. So when, as I was writing Crossing Borders, I found myself uh, digging into the emergence of the alt-right and uh, more specifically Breitbart News. And it was Andrew Breitbart who's, who said, culture is downstream from politics, uh, which from my perspective underscored what we've been saying for a long time is that immigration is not about politics and policy. It's really about culture and values. And what Breitbart 
Infowars, Trump, and so many others on the right, on the far right, have been able to do is to be able to, to create a culture war within the country around immigration that then reshapes politics. So, uh, and therefore leads people, I think we would all agree, to vote against their self interest by being anti immigrant. But I think in order to turn that around, it's not a political debate. In fact, if we make it a political debate, we are just kind of, uh, we're, we're, we're letting people kind of retrench within their political identities. Really what this is, is a cultural debate. So how do we help Americans be comfortable with the idea of diversifying, of their communities becoming more diverse? of their churches becoming more diverse, so their schools becoming more diverse. That's not a political question. That's a cultural question. Um, and, you know, for us, our work has always been based on how do you engage that pastor, that police chief, that local CEO to be in a leadership position on those conversations? Um, because, look, people, I'm the worst. I'm the, I'm the worst messenger, right? I'm a Washington, D.C. based immigration advocate, you know, I'm the least convincing person in the world when it comes to this. Uh, um, but you know, from our perspective, we're always just trying to think about, okay, how do we get downstream from the political debate and try to shift the cultural debate? You know, I feel your pain because I'm a Washington, D.C. based fiscal advocate. So you're even worse. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I'm in even worse shape. You know, as you were talking, it occurred to me, uh, you know, that almost everybody in this country has roots from immigration from elsewhere. And in in trying to reconcile, I wonder if it's if it helps or if you've found that it helps to try to get people to think about their own immigrant experience. It might go back one generation. It might go back five generations. But we all had some reason that somebody, some ancestor, combination of ancestors came here. And the reasons probably weren't that different from the reasons that are people are coming here now. And I think that tends to get forgotten. So I wonder if that's any sort of a promising thing by talking about the cultural experience of the past on immigration. You know, uh, for my first book, uh, Doris Meisner, who ran Immigration Naturalization Services for the Clinton administration, she told me to paraphrase, um, people value their immigration history, but they're very skeptical of immigration in the present day. So I think there is kind of a cognitive dissonance for many folks um, between kind of their own family history and kind of what they're seeing on their screens every single day. Um, And, you know, in the tragedies of the last year, the migration tragedies of the last year, I think what is beginning to emerge is an opportunity. And I'm talking about the evacuation of tens of thousands of Afghans last summer, where you saw this outpouring of support from the veterans community to not just get people out, but make sure they're resettled here. Then you had a deep questioning uh, from those very same folks about how we were treating Haitian migrants who came to the U.S.-Mexico border just a month or two later. And now this terrible war in Ukraine um, is leading to the exodus of millions of people. So I think I'm hoping that Americans are realizing that anybody can become a refugee, anybody can become an immigrant, um, and that our systems in this day and age are completely unable to live up to the moment. So we need we need Biden and other leaders around the world to take a step back and say, okay, how do we make sure that our immigration or refugee systems can live up to the moment that we see today and the moments to come? We're going to have to wrap things up. So let's do it on an optimistic note. Uh, Ali, uh, do you think that there's uh, some some hope for uh, this reconciliation process in the near future? 
I, I certainly do. I mean, look, I, through this project, I got to know so many uh, amazing leaders around the country, across around the world, much less, who are every day are uh, um, reaching out to new allies, engaging new folks, uh, supporting immigrants and refugees, and you know, putting their own you know, economic livelihood often at risk and their own family and friend networks at risk by saying, you know what, we've got to be thinking of this very, very different. Uh, so sometimes as, as advocates or as think tank people, we kind of forget what it means to take a step back and ask yourself, okay, what are my friends and family really telling me about this very controversial issue? And it takes a lot of courage to you know, have a challenging conversation with your brother, your sister, your parents, much less your friends about something like immigration. I think that courage uh, is what's going to get us closer to the reconciliation of a nation of immigrants. Well, let's hope so. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition uh, Communications Director Av Harris, and I have been talking with Ali Narani, President and CEO of the National Immigration Forum. Uh, we've been discussing immigration policy. Ali is author of a new book called Crossing Borders, The Reconciliation of a Nation of Immigrants. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris and I are discussing U.S. immigration policy with Ambassador George Bruno, an immigration lawyer, an experienced diplomat, and former U.S. ambassador to Belize. And George has held a number of uh, diplomatic positions and missions around the world. Uh, one of them that's become somewhat relevant in recent weeks is he was an advisor to the Bosnia War Crimes Tribunal. Uh, Ambassador Bruno, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you very much, Bob. I really appreciate your uh, your joining us. Um, you know, George, uh, the world is blowing up, uh, and, and the, the question is: uh, is that what ramifications are that for the U.S. immigration system? Uh, and I thought maybe we could talk about. You know, you've seen and been involved in solving conflicts all over the world. And I, I thought we'd start there and talk about some of the problems that are, that are that come out of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. And then maybe talk about your experience uh, in the uh, second segment that we've got today on the U.S. immigration system and what its uh, flaws are at the moment and how we're going to have to take some actions to, um, to repair it. So um, let's let's just leap in. And, and, and I'll tell you, I grew up in the shadow of World War Two as a, as a baby boomer. I never, ever thought uh, I would see anything like this. I got an email from my sister who said, I thought they told us in high school that this would never happen again. Um, George, uh, what are your reflections? Uh, we're, we're living at a time where. Uh, uh, there's tremendous movement of people all around the world, and it's not good. Uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees, and uh, most recently millions of refugees, uh, four million and counting, have, have moved out of uh, over the border into uh, Poland and Hungary and Moldova. And all. It's, uh, it's a very stressful time for the world. But that's only the latest uh, from Ukraine. Now, prior to that, we had Afghanistan. Refugees uh, just 
spreading all over. And then prior to that, we had Syria. Prior to that, we had uh, Iraq. It's, uh, it's, it's an unsettled time around the world. And the reaction of governments around the world has, has been very mixed. The United States uh, reaction to this has been uh, very slow from, the, from an immigration front. Uh, it was slow on the Afghan uh, resettlement. Uh, we had special visas for Afghans who were assisting U.S. forces while we were in Afghanistan. Uh, and for 10, 15 years, uh, Afghans uh, trickled into the United States, despite the fact that uh, there were uh, thousands of visas for them to come here, but that those visas just sat on the table and, uh, and were unused. Uh, we don't have a program for Ukrainians to come into the United States. Uh, there is no program. Uh, President Biden has said that he's going to uh, open up uh, uh, asylum to 100,000 uh, Afghans. Uh, but, but the problem is uh, uh, we don't have the staff, the resources uh, to do any of that immediately. You know, I was reading uh, 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 something about the, the first, way, first uh, group of uh, Ukrainian uh, immigrants coming in, as you said, that'd be uh, authorized for 100,000 um, uh, refugees. Um, and they appear to be crowding the border in, uh, in Mexico. Um, I, I was wondering, can they come in through the northern border as well? I mean, is there a they, way they to can, get? Yeah, if, if they can get to Canada or if they can get to Mexico, border officials are allowing them to cross. The problem, of course, is how do you get to these countries? Do you have the money to buy plane tickets? Uh, can you get a visa from a Canadian embassy somewhere or a Mexican embassy. It's extremely difficult. Obviously, we're going to see an impact on immigration when you, whenever you have a global conflict like this <clears throat> and there are these great movements of people around the world. Just like the Russian invasion of Ukraine has kind of woken up the Europeans and the Americans in terms of the security concerns of that, do you think that there's an opportunity to have a galvanizing effect on our immigration policy based on what we're seeing in Ukraine now, if that will impact people politically, that it will seep into Congress. Because one of the things that if you look forward into the future, this is not going to stop. There are going to be other waves of immigration. I mean, we have there, there is a whole probably a period of time coming soon. It's already started about waves of immigration because of climate change, because places that had been habitable are becoming less so, water resources are becoming scarce, um, and people are going to be looking for places to come where they can, they can live, they can work, they can earn money, send their kids to good schools. And we're one of those places. We still have a lot of room to take in a lot of immigrants, and we need immigrants uh, to sustain our economy for the long term. So do you think there's a chance that this whole rethinking of our security posture may impact also rethinking of our immigration system and how it needs to change? Uh, in, in a word, no. <laughs> uh, 
I, I don't think we're there politically. Uh, I think that there are other things at the top of the agenda, uh, notably uh, COVID, uh, not notably trade policy, uh, uh, def defense postures, uh, global warming. Uh, I think all of these things are going to come before uh, we get to uh, an, an immigration uh, reform. Uh, Congress has had many opportunities to do uh, immigration reform. Uh, I mean, one of the si simplest and easiest reforms is to um, uh, normalize uh, the DACA's, uh, uh, you know, the deferred arrival for uh, for young people in the United States, uh, uh, and uh, we we can't even get to that. Even though there's broad consensus uh, throughout the United States uh, that these young persons uh, uh, should be normalized and fully integrated into American society. Yeah, George, one of the things that you've had experience with is with the uh, the Kosovo, uh, the Bosnia, excuse me, war crimes tribunal. Um, we're th we're actually thinking about the war crimes again now, looking at what's going on in uh, Ukraine. What are the difficulties of uh, Establishing a, a war war crimes uh, charges. Well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, I understand that teams from the uh, ICC, the International Court of Criminal Justice, are in the Ukraine. They're gathering evidence. Uh, you you have to have the physical evidence, the witnesses. Uh, you have to be able to track the witnesses because they're moving around. Uh, you have to have uh, photographs, uh, and then uh, you have to uh, be able to put together a case that uh, war crimes are being committed, uh, it, and and uh, and you have to make sure that you have the resources to do that. Prosecutors, judges, uh, courtrooms, uh, and uh, and then of course you have the problem of uh, how do you bring uh, the defendants before the court. The court has jurisdiction uh, in this case, even though Russia uh, is is not a member of the uh, the ICC, uh, Ukraine is, and so therefore the crimes are being committed in the Ukraine. So the International Court of Criminal Justice has jurisdiction in these cases, but it will be many years before I think we see a trial. Uh, uh, they're, they're just not uh, uh, very efficient and very easy. Uh, when when uh, I was working with the uh, War Crimes Tribunal in, uh, in Bosnia, uh, we had the courtrooms, we had the judges, we had the prosecutors, uh, and uh, uh, war criminals were even being convicted. What we didn't have was jails. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and so they would be convicted and uh, they would uh, essentially be under house arrest in uh, in an office building. And uh, they had cell phones. They had catered meals. They could they could come and go. Uh, they could have visitors. And these were war criminals. So you have to have a a a complete system from top to bottom. Uh, uh, theoretically, the Hague can, uh, where the uh, war crimes tribunal is uh, in this instance, uh, 
uh, has the infrastructure to do this. Uh, but uh, the idea of seeing somebody like uh, President Putin before uh, the court, I think, is a long way off. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Communications Director. Av Harris and I are discussing immigration policy with former U.S. Ambassador to Belize, George Bruno, an experienced diplomat who practices in immigration law and was an advisor to the Bosnian War Crimes Tribunal. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris and I are discussing immigration policy with former U.S. Ambassador to Belize, George Bruno, an experienced diplomat who practices immigration law and was an advisor to the Bosnia War Crimes Tribunal. You know, George, in the last segment, we were talking uh, about events in the world and uh, how the uh, things that are going on might come back uh, to have ramifications for the U.S. immigration system. And I know you've got some thoughts on uh, the U.S. immigration system in general, what its shortfalls are and uh, how it might be improved. So, uh, Av, do you want to get us uh, start off on this section? Absolutely. So, uh, George, I wonder if if you look at the American immigration system, it's 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 got so many problems <laughs> in so many different areas. I wonder if you can break down, if you had to start somewhere, if we if we looked at the refugees that it may be coming here from Ukraine, other refugees from other conflicts who may be coming here, it just seems to me that the American immigration policy, if there is one, is always so reactive. We're slow to catch up on trends. We don't necessarily do a good job of planning for the future and then positioning our policy to look forward to what the country actually needs. So if you look at this system, where would you start? Um, where do you think is somewhere where we could start fixing things that actually may have a chance of either passing in Congress or making further reforms? Where would you start? First of all, uh, let me uh, start with a basic uh, proposition. There are only four ways in which a person can enter the United States. It can be family-based. It can be employment-based, in other words, sponsors by an employer or sponsorship by a family, a qualified family member. Uh, a person can also come in through humanitarian parole, which is uh, what we've been doing lately with uh, Afghans, or they can come in as, uh, as an asylee. Uh, so those, or, or they can, a person can come in on a temporary visa, uh, uh, you know, as, as a visitor or a temporary worker. Uh, but if you're coming in on a permanent basis, uh, there are only those four ways, uh, in addition to uh, uh, having an investment visa. So uh, it's limited to that. Uh, uh, the U.S. immigration system doesn't really serve any of those constituencies very well. It doesn't serve families very well. It doesn't serve uh, employers very well. Uh, it's, it's reactive. It doesn't respond to needs as needs arrive. 
for example, uh, coming out of COVID and uh, all of the uh, uh, chain uh, supply uh, issues, uh, the United States needs 80,000 truck drivers. We don't have a way to get them into the United States uh, if there are no American citizens uh, willing to uh, uh, apply for and qualify as a truck driver. And you can go down the line to, uh, to other industries. Uh, we just, uh, uh, it doesn't serve employers very well. It doesn't serve families very well. We had a lottery the other day, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, for professionals under the H-1B uh, uh, visa program. Uh, you can only apply for an H-1B professional visa for 18 days for the entire year, March 1st to March 18th. And then you register for a lottery. And then a lottery is conducted and out of the lottery, then they pick the, the uh, applicants that may qualify for the actual visa. This year, 308,000 employers registered for an H-1B visa. Uh, the result was that there are only 65,000 visas available. So you've got what, a, a one out of four chances, uh, maybe one out of five, of an employer getting a visa. I had, uh, I represent a restaurant chain, for example, in Boston. Uh, they wanted to bring in uh, uh, six chefs uh, because we can't find uh, chefs that, uh, that uh, are, are able to cook uh, gourmet, high-end uh, uh, Southern Indian cuisine. None of the chefs uh, made it through the lottery. So my client now is faced with the prospect of reducing hours, uh, not being able to expand his business, and its, it's uh, result is a drain on the economy. Not a good situation. So that's an illustration of how the system really not working is impacting our economy. So if you could get a hold of enough people in Congress to form a nucleus of those who could do something positive for the immigration system, what would you tell them to do first that would be a good practical let, step forward? Let, 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 uh, I'm going to answer that in a moment, but let me uh, uh, just mention uh, a rather creative way in which uh, at least a couple of employers uh, in the state of New Hampshire are dealing with it. Uh, they, uh, uh, this Chamber of Commerce went out to South Dakota and talked with the people on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation to see if uh, they had some young people that would, that would be willing to relocate to New Hampshire for summer employment. And, uh, and, and uh, there were a lot of unemployed people uh, Native Americans uh, in South Dakota, and they got a very warm reception. So that is one, you know, small positive story of, of addressing a larger problem. Uh, but what would I do in the bigger picture first? Uh, 
one of the one of the problems is when you try to fix family-based immigration, uh, the, uh, uh, the the unions and uh, the chambers of commerce say no, no, no. Uh, we want to be the priority. So when you try to fix uh, uh, employment-based Im- immigration, uh, the families say no. Uh, we want our our relatives to. Uh, to be the priority. So you've got these, uh, the tension between these forces in Washington that, uh, that won't allow the uh, Congress to move forward. And Congress is not very interested. Anyhow, there's an anti-immigration sentiment that I think uh, pervades Washington uh, to begin with. But uh, if we're going to solve this problem, uh, anytime soon, I would break it up into smaller chunks and just do what we can. I'd start with DACA, which is uh, an easy lift. Uh, 80% of the American people uh, uh, are in favor of normalizing the status of young people that came into the United States uh, uh, with with their parents, and, uh, and, and uh, they are part of the American society and, uh, and are integrated uh, into uh, our, our schools and our businesses and our neighborhoods. And that should be a very easy start. This feared surge of migrants at the southern border that people are talking about now that the Biden administration is lifting the restriction on, on immigration that was put in as a public health measure. Title 42. A lot of discussion has been focused on what we can do working with countries such as Honduras, El Salvador, Belize, where you were the ambassador, and other countries in Central and South America to try to impact the demand for people trying to seek refuge by going north to the United States. Is the effort to reduce demand by improving the living conditions of people who have to flee their homes, uh, a lot of times under duress, either economic or security duress, is that effort where we should be focusing or should we really be embracing more immigration because we need the people we need the we need we need the growth and the 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 population of working people um, no matter where they come from or what their circumstances are if we look forward in the next 30 to 50 years in the United States no you're absolutely absolutely right it's both uh, we should continue to provide aid to uh, these uh, third world countries, these countries in the state of development uh, to relieve the uh, conditions of uh, poverty and disease and indeed uh, uh, corruption and, and uh, help uh, establish uh, the rule of law uh, in, in these countries. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, we should admit uh, a number of uh, these these persons. You know, Canada has a very flexible system. If uh, if a uh, if a province in Canada needs uh, plumbers, if it needs bakers, if it needs truck drivers, uh, it has a way in which it can almost immediately uh, list them on the website. And if the person uh, who's applying qualifies by way of uh, age uh, uh, and uh, 
and and uh, training and experience and language, uh, they they immediately get to uh, to enter Canada, and it's not a long process. Uh, uh, when a person applies for a visa to come to the United States, if they can ever get to a U.S. embassy to speak to a consular officer, uh, which isn't so easy these days, uh, because our embassies are built are being built like fortresses uh, and bunkers, the process takes uh, the good part of a year to, to get a visa to come to the United States. It's it's uh, an appalling system of hoops that uh, people need to jump through in order to get a visa to come to, the, to this country. George, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, that's all the time that we have on Facing the Future for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris and I have been discussing immigration policy with George Bruno, former U.S. ambassador to Belize, an immigration lawyer and an experienced diplomat. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.